Welcome to Expresso Crime, a podcast all about crimes, short enough to listen to while you enjoy your cup of coffee. Hello, hello. Welcome to today's episode of Expresso Crime. Today we discover how the eyeball killer came to be and how the FBI ended up identifying who the eyeball killer terrorizing Dallas was. So, Charles Albright, also known as the eyeball killer, was born August 10, 1933 in Texas. He was adopted from an orphanage by the Albrights at three weeks old. His adoptive mother was a school teacher, very strict and overprotective of him. His mother would change his clothes up to three times a day to keep him clean as she was very worried he would catch polio by touching things he shouldn't be. She even took him to the hospital to show him what would happen if he was to get polio. His mom would punish him by making him sit in a dark room and when he refused to take a nap, she would tie him to the bed. She accelerated his education and helped him skip two grades. She also made sure to instill good manners and that he was always respectful to women. When he got his first gun as a teenager, he killed small animals with it, and his mother would help him stuff them due to his interest in becoming a taxidermist. She showed him how to use a knife to cut a skull open, how to use a spoon to scoop up the brains and forceps to remove the eyes. At age 13, he was already a petty theft and was arrested for aggravated assault. At age 15, he graduated from high school and enrolled at North Texas University. He expressed an interest in training as a medical doctor and surgeon, and he undertook pre-med training but failed to complete it. At age 16, the police caught him with some stolen petty cash along with two handguns and a rifle. He spent a year in jail despite his mom asking the judge if she could do the time for him. After his release from jail, he attended Arkansas State Teachers College and majored in pre-med studies. After being found with stolen items, he was expelled from the college but was not prosecuted. His bad streak continued as he falsified a degree, he stole documents and forged signatures, and he even gave himself a fake bachelor's and master's degree. He married his colleague girlfriend and they had a daughter. He continued to forge checks though and when he was caught uh, while teaching he was placed on probation. In 1965 he was he and his wife separated and they finally got a divorce in 1974. He was then caught stealing hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise from a hardware store and received a two-year prison sentence. He served less than six months before being released. During this time he was began to befriend and gain the trust of his neighbors, and he was even asked by them to babysit their children. In 1981, while visiting some friends, he sexually assaulted their 14-year-old daughter. He was prosecuted, pled guilty, and received probation. He later claimed that he was innocent but had pled guilty to avoid any hassle. In 1984, he applied to be a leader in the Boy Scouts of America and was rejected. The next year in Arkansas, Albright met a woman named Dixie. He invited her to live with him, and soon she was paying his bills and supporting him. He delivered newspapers in the early morning, apparently to visit sex workers without causing Dixie to suspect anything. At age 57, Albright became a murderer. On December 13, 1990, he killed a well-known sex worker. She was found wearing only a t-shirt and bra. She had been shot in the back of the head, as well as being badly beaten. The medical examiner reported that the killer had removed both of her eyes with surgical precision and had apparently taken them with him. At this point, without any evidence, weapons or witnesses, the police figured this was a John Turnbad. 
On February 10, 1991, another sex worker was found murdered on the same street as the first. She was nearly nude and had been shot three times, in the top of her head, in her left breast, and in the back of her head. The medical examiner found that her eyes had been removed as well. At this point, the investigators realized they were looking for a repeater. With how carefully the eyes were cut out in the same area, the FBI placed the eyeball killer on the watch list, though they didn't have anything else to go off of. Police were cautious as they didn't want the killer to change his killing grounds as it would be difficult to find him, but with two similar victims and no info, they reached out to the public and created a tip line, though the information on the eyeballs were kept secret. The police set up sting operations with undercovers and ran the place of every John to see if there were any criminals or backgrounds. This proved to be unsuccessful. On March 10, 1991, a sex worker was found dead lying near an elementary school with her body propped up against a curb. Her eyes had been removed just like the previous two victims and she had facial bruising and a broken nose. She had been shot in the face and through the top of her head. As the police had feared, the killer changed his killing grounds with his third victim. This time, though, he was rushed and left the tip of his exacto knife blade at the scene. These types of killings shook other sex workers within the Dallas area. Many decide, decided for their safety it was best to leave. Brenda White, a longtime sex worker, refused to leave. Albright picked her up and instead of taking her to a motel like she had said to, he said he had a better spot. Now alarm bells were, would ring as she would never allow new Johns to take her anywhere besides the local motel. She asked him to let her out and when he didn't, she sprayed him in the face with mace. As he screamed over the mace, he threatened he would kill them all. Brenda White told police what happened, and the police ended up rethinking something that had been previously told by another sex worker who had said she was attacked by a man who matched the same description and that a truck driver, Axon Schilder, had saved her from the attack. The police dug into Axon Shoulder's background and discovered that his property was owned by Fred Elbright, the now deceased father, and that the father actually owned a house near where the first two killings took place. The police then recalled a tip they received from an anonymous caller that said her friend was recently dating a man that was nice and polite but obsessed with eyes and that he had a box of exacto blades in his attic. Albright's photo was shown to the two survivors, and after days of working at the Courage, they identified him. At 2.30 a.m. on March 22nd, a SWAT unit arrived at Albright's home and arrested him. Now Albright had been arrested and charged with three counts of murder. His trial began on December 13, 1991. The evidence was mostly circumstantial. There was hair found at the last victim's murder that matched Albright's hair. On December 18, 1991, the jury deliberated and found him guilty only of the murder of one victim, the last victim. Albright died in September 2020 while incarcerated. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Smiley face.